passage this Advent is Isaiah chapter 9. So I want to encourage you to turn there with me. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 through 7. And we read this last week, and then we saw a supplemental passage with that in Colossians. Well, this week it's just going to be Isaiah 9, and then we'll look at some other passages in Scripture. But if you would stand as we read this passage, appropriate last week that we started it, for many of you saying at the Messiah... And this is a very familiar section. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Amen. Let's pray. Father, as we read once again one of the most powerful and exciting verses of the scriptures. I pray that we would not read these as dry words, but we would be thinking just about not only the import of what they, they say, but just the fact that your grace would be so great that with a rebellious people, you would be desiring to save, that you would still provide a way, that you would send your son, it's in his name that we pray this morning, asking that you would give us understanding. Amen. You may be seated. Well, we are looking at one title at a time this month, and today we will look at the title Everlasting Father. Of any of these four titles, this is probably the most difficult for some because as Christians who believe that God is a triune God of three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in one. When we hear everlasting Father, our initial reaction is to think, well, wait a second, how can the incarnate Son be the Father? So let me start with saying that Isaiah is not talking about the Trinity in this passage. He isn't using father in that sense, and I'll explain that in in greater detail later. But for now, I don't want you to be distracted by this detail. Instead, let's talk about this adjective everlasting that begins the title. The term everlasting father in the passage is actually only one word in Hebrew. It's abiad, where avi is father, and ad means forever. So, for example, Isaiah uses the word ad in other passages like Isaiah 26, 4. Trust in the Lord forever. Psalm 132, 12 reads, If your sons keep my covenant and my testimonies that I shall teach them, their sons also forever shall sit on your throne. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling place. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. And in nearly every case, especially when used as an adjective, as in Isaiah 9, our passage, the word everlasting means forever in terms of eternal, forever into the future. It doesn't necessarily refer to eternal past. 
And of course, it doesn't mean that the Son of God didn't exist in the eternal past. It's just that's not necessarily being expressed in this particular passage. There are plenty of other passages that address the issue. But when we see the word everlasting here in this context, it means that the fatherhood of Christ, and again, we'll explore that in just a moment, once it started, once it was established, lasts forever. Okay, that's what Isaiah is saying. So, for example, in Hebrews 6, 19, we read, we have this as a sure and steady or steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And notice with regard to being a high priest on our behalf, Jesus became a high priest through what he did at a point in time, but that that priesthood lasts forever, saying similar things to Isaiah chapter 9. Now, unlike the priesthood of Aaron, which lasted a lifetime and was handed down from generation to generation, the priesthood of Melchizedek is a forever priesthood. And we don't have time to go into understanding more about that order or the priesthood of Melchizedek. I I encourage you to look it up. It's a fascinating study. You can look in Hebrews, Genesis 14, where we are introduced to the mysterious figure of Melchizedek. But the point is simply that Isaiah says that a child would be born who would be as a father to his people and that this fathering would be forever. And so let's try to understand that term, father. It's a word that has many different shades of meaning. One can be a father of a movement or of a nation, for example, because he is a founder or a leader. One can also be a father in the sense of going before others and being responsible for them or having been instrumental in producing something and those coming after. In that sense, I might say I have many fathers in the faith, meaning that there are many wise, respected father-like men older than I am, who have been instrumental in my own growth, instilling their wisdom in me. As another example, Adam is said to be the father of us all, because he is literally, biologically, the father of us all. But even more significantly, he represents us. We are said to have died in Adam because of the fall. And Jesus is a father in all of those senses. First, he is the father of Christianity and our faith. And while it is true that there was always grace in the Old Testament, just as there is always law in the New Testament, yet without Christ, we would likely have remained, as the people in Jesus' time, stuck on an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. It took Jesus to clarify that there are also principles like that which we find in Matthew 5. You've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. If you understand that all the Old Testament law is summed up in the principles of loving the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, And loving your neighbor as yourself, if you realize that you can worship God in spirit and in truth, it is because Jesus revealed and clarified those truths. Spurgeon once wrote, Jesus is the father of spiritual worship. It has been common to call Socrates the father of philosophy. Well, 
Jesus is the father of the philosophy of salvation. Galen, the father of medicine, well, Jesus is the father of the medicine of souls. Herodotus, the father of history, but Jesus is the father of heaven and earth. He is the father of selfless living, of love that is true to men. He is the father of forgiving one's enemies, the father, in fact, of the divine system of Christian life. Whoever said, by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, who but the apostle of this man, Christ Jesus, who told men that it was not by works of righteousness which they have done, but by the merit of his passion and his life by which they are saved, who revealed the way of faith to men, but but Christ, the great doctrine of believe and live, and those who receive it may claim Christ as Father. Spurgeon goes on to say, He is the Father of the Christian faith, a faith, my brethren, which, albeit that it has done much already for the world, for in old Rome it put down the fights in the Colosseum, threw down the bestial gods of heathendom, and albeit that it is doing much for the world even now and helping to purge the vast Aegean stable of humanity, it is... To do more still, it is to cast out war, it is to destroy error, it is to regenerate the human race. The father of this purifying system, which is doctrinal and practical, and which has already worked the best results to men, is the Lord Jesus. And since it was devised of old and will be prolonged as long as the world stands. So a good quote by him. I think brings out well this idea of Jesus being the father of our faith, or the father of of Christianity. Second, he is a father in that, that he is instrumental, as I said, in our growth. He is the source of all truth and light and life. As Jesus says in John 10, 27, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. And when we think of our own fathers, besides their character and what makes them fatherly, this is the common way in which we think of someone being a father, that from them we have been given physical life. And then by them we have been protected and provided for. Well, in Jesus we have spiritual life. As these passages make clear, 2 Corinthians 5.17, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. You know that passage. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. John 5, 21. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. John 1, 11, He came to his own. His own did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of the blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. So we have these, these powerful passages that speak of Jesus as being the source of life, the giver of life, the provider. Even in Hebrews 12, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder, right, the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So Jesus gives life to whom he wills. We saw in the earlier passage, he gives them the right to become children of God. 
He is the founder and perfecter of our faith. Those are all characteristics of being a father. And so he is one in that he is the establisher, sustainer, and leader. He is a father in that he is the giver of life and provider and originator. Third, he is a father in the sense of representing us. He is said to be the second Adam, and that is significant. And the classic passage for that is Romans 5, right? Verses 12 through 17. Just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Paul says, for sin was in the world before law was given, but sin was not counted where there is no law. Yet, death reigned from Adam to Moses. Even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. It's referring to Jesus who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. What Jesus offers is not like what Adam brought For if many died through one man's trespass, through Adam's sin, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of Adam's sin, that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, separation from God, exile, banishment from the Garden of Eden, but in his presence. But the free gift of Christ following all of those trespasses, brought justification. For if because of Adam's trespass, death reigned through him, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through that one man, Jesus Christ. And we see what he's setting up, right? He's setting up these parallels, the first Adam, the second Adam, first Adam, the last Adam. Those two terms are both used in the Bible But we're told that through Adam came the sin nature such that everyone who is in him and represented by him has sinned. And some of you wonder how it is that a God who created the universe by the power of his word would not just simply forgive sin. If God really didn't desire that his creation would perish, why not simply be merciful without the cross? Does God owe any man, woman, Anything? Have you ever wondered such things? God cannot fail to deal with sin for many reasons, but I'll give you just two. First, God made a very clear statement to Adam and Eve that in the day that they ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they would die. Sin is that transgression of God's commandment and law, their disobedience, and the consequence of it was and is spiritual and ultimately physical death. And so that was what was told to us in Romans 5. Adam, this federal head, this father of us all, or a representative, in him all of us sinned. And children, it's important that you understand this because you have grown up in loving families and nice, secure homes. And it's hard to imagine that you were born in sin and under the penalty of death, but that is what the Bible says. If God were to allow even one person to escape the penalty of spiritual death for sin, then he would rightly be accused of partiality. His righteousness was the first reason that we, he can't ignore sin. And the second is this. God's attributes of wrath and justice are just as important as mercy. And all of these must coexist and not contradict one another. 
Can God lie? No. Because he is holy and true. Can God fail to be just? No, he cannot. When we have our entire lives rebelled against God, transgressed his holy standards, exalted ourselves in his place, and said that what our flesh wants is more important than what our creator and Lord commands, then the only just thing for him to do is to punish our offense with a judgment that fits the crime. And what could be a greater crime than rebelling against God? That's the principle. And the penalty is death. And when Jesus told his disciples that he was heading to the cross, he was going to be the second Adam, he was going to provide a way, Peter boldly said, well, I'll die in your place. I'll die for you. But let me ask you this, if Peter, who was already under the penalty of death for being born in sin under Adam and then continued to sin throughout his entire life, if he were to die for in Jesus' place, how could that have accomplished anything? Peter was already condemned to die. Right? Someone might say, well, wasn't that noble, though, for Peter to offer? Doesn't that give some special nature to his willingness to to die in the place of Jesus? Doesn't that show a, a love that is worthy of God's notice? Well, for that matter, what about all the good things that men do? Right? Like brokenheartedness. Like confessing. What about the, all the good deeds you can imagine? Aren't, aren't those worthy of God's attention? What about giving to charities and prayer? And you can see where I'm going because those are the same questions that the Pharisees asked. Can't God accept our good deeds, especially our love and our brokenheartedness as a payment for what we've done? Well, would Peter's sacrificial death be worth something? Even in a, offered in this noble way. And I'll answer that by asking a second question. Should God forgive our past rebellion simply because we start doing what he says? Assuming that we could. With perfect motives. It's similar to asking, does a murderer get to go free without punishment simply because at some point after his crime, he decides to be obedient to the state? And the answer is no. Now I'll put the same question in terms of Peter. Should Peter's previous sins against God be forgiven just because at some point in his life he decided to do something that would please God? Peter was already under obligation to serve and please God. Doing something noble would be like the criminal who suddenly starts to obey the state and its laws. It's what he should have been doing all along. And the bottom line is we cannot consider our present obedience as payment to God for our past offense. Peter's death in Jesus' place would not have accomplished anything. So how can we release the debt that God says that we owe over our sins? How can we avoid death? If that had sunk down into Peter's mind, if he had understood at the time why Jesus said no, impossible, he would have realized there seems to be no escape, no possibility. 
Anything good that we would do in the present would be only what we owe God in the first place. It would never make up for the past offense. And that's, that's really the heart of, of the Pilgrim's Progress story in which Christian is weighed down. He, he understands in, in greater comprehension the weight of his past sin. And he can't get rid of it, right? And it just gets heavier and heavier and heavier. The, the further he walks down the path and understands the gravity of what it meant to sin against God. And it's finally when what? When he sees the cross, that the back, you know, the burden falls off. That's the only solution. Jesus' death as our substitute. None of us, not even a noble Peter, could die in Jesus' place for us. But Jesus could die for us. Why? What was different about his death than would have been true of Peter's death? Well, when God created Adam and Eve, they were free from sin. They were not under the penalty of spiritual and physical death. And what that tells us is that for a person who is born without sin, until he sins, he does not have to die. And so, death is, if it's a punishment for sin against God, we need to understand that what was different about Jesus is he was born without sin. He never sinned in his entire life, therefore he did not have to die, and that's a very important point. Because when he willingly accepted upon himself the sins of his people and represented them on the cross, even as Adam represented us, the federal head of those who have fallen, Jesus took all of that upon himself. And he accepted that punishment for those sins. But when he died, his death was different. Because he did not deserve to die. The grave could not hold him. And so that's why Jesus has to react so forcefully and rebuke the disciples every time they suggest that he should not either die in their place or that they would drink his cup with them or they would would do, at least they would go with him try and do what he would do, or they tried to divert him from the right path. And sometimes it was such a violent reaction on Jesus' part that he tells them, get behind me, Satan. None of us could do what he did because he is the only one who was without sin. And on the flip side, he could not fail to die for us, not if we had any hope of being released from the fatherhood of Adam, the first one. And that's why in John 13, 8, Jesus tells Peter that it is necessary that he wash Peter, not that Peter wash him. And there Jesus is referring to that washing of the regeneration of the Holy Spirit, right? Made possible because of his death. Well, just one more thing. There's another way that Jesus' death is different, and that the fact that Jesus was a son of God incarnated in human flesh meant that his death and atonement were of infinite worth. Not only did it satisfy the infinite demands of God, but it atoned for everyone who sin he bore. No mere man, not even 
a sinless Peter could have accomplished that. And that's one of the reasons why God said that the death of sinless animals could never fully remove man's guilt. So Jesus, the incarnate Son of God, sinless, who lives life as a man, lives in our place, knowing all that we are facing, goes to the cross and is the perfect infinite sacrifice, the Lamb of God. And when I think of those things, I don't know about you, but you, you have to be overwhelmed by thankfulness for the grace of God, that he would die in your place. From the moment you were born, you were under the fatherhood of Adam, the first one. But even when they fell, he is already committed to dying in your place. Because all the way back in Genesis 3, he says that one day one of your descendants, the seed of the woman, will crush the serpent's head. Will take care of this situation for you. And so as we go back to Romans 5, that's why the final sentences are so meaningful. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. So just as dead as you were in Adam with no hope, in that same extreme you are alive with abundant life forever with hope under the second Adam. And so this is also what is meant by the title Everlasting Father. It is what was meant by Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, 45, when he says, thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. And in commenting on that passage, one author writes, in our first birth, we come under the fatherhood of the fallen one. In our second birth, we enter into the fatherhood of the innocent and perfect one. In our first fatherhood, we wear the image of the earthy. In the second, we receive the image of the heavenly. Through our relationship to Adam, we became corrupt and weak, and the body was put into the grave in dishonor, corruption, weakness, and in shame. But when we come under the dominion of the second Adam, we receive strength and inward spiritual life, and therefore our body rises again like seed sown, which rises to a glorious harvest in the image of the heavenly with honor and power and happiness and eternal life. Well, what I've said so far this morning speaks to the many things that fathers do. But one can also be fatherly or father-like in character. And when we think of the best of fathers, we think of those who are gentle, who are willing to serve, who are affectionate and more. And John 17 is one of those passages that reveals a fatherly side of Jesus. Particularly verses 8 and 9 where he says, I have given them the words that you have given me and, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you. They believe that you sent me and I'm praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. There's this, this fatherly care and attention to their future. I go to prepare a place for you, right? And I will come back and get you. And so Paul says, who is to condemn Christ Jesus as the one who died more than that, who was raised, who's at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. 
It is Christ who cares for you. It is Christ who wept over those who were lost. And that fatherly care is everlasting. As Hebrews 7.25 says, He always lives to make intercession for us. He loves us. He prays for us. He intercedes for us. He provides for us, giving us not only the bread we need to survive, but He is the heavenly bread we need for eternal life. He protects us. Unlike those false shepherds who run at the, the hint of risk and danger, our chief shepherd lays down his life. He loves children. He loves orphans, widows, the helpless, the persecuted. Hebrews 5.2 describes how, as our high priest, Jesus deals gently with the ignorant and the wayward. And John Owen, commenting on that, said, this means that he can no more cast off poor sinners for their ignorance and wanderings than a nursing father should cast away a child for its crying. Thus ought it to be with a high priest, and thus it is with Jesus Christ. He is able with all meekness and gentleness, with patience and moderation, to bear with the infirmities and sins and provocations of his people, even as a father bears with the weaknesses of a poor infant. And one more quote this time from Jonathan Edwards. There is no love so great and so wonderful as that which is in the heart of Christ. He is one that delights in mercy. He is ready to pity those that are suffering. One that delights in the happiness of his creatures. Parents are full of kindness towards their children, but that is but a reflection of the kindness of Jesus Christ. And so fatherly was Jesus that he was able to say to Philip in John 14, 9, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? And the words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves." That's saying is that Jesus' words and actions were perfect revealers of who the Father is. His mind, his heart, his deeds, all to the extent that Jesus could say, I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Or another time he says, those who have seen me have seen the Father. So he's a perfect revealer and a perfect expression of the Father of God. How can we draw comfort from the fact that one of Jesus' titles is Everlasting Father? Well, given that he is the founder and leader of our faith, that he is the giver of life, that he is our perfect representative, that he is a gentle, tender, loving, fatherly Lord towards us, and that all in turn, all of that is everlasting, he never stops being a father towards us in this sense. Just as in another way, he never stops being a husband to his bride. That's how it's comforting. It never ends. If you are in union with Christ, you are a child of God forever. Just as he once said, I will lose none of those whom you have given me. It's like a father who puts his children behind him. If you want to get to these, you have to go through me. That's what Jesus says. The question this morning is, is Jesus an everlasting father to you? 
The Jews rejected Jesus. They said, we have Abraham as our father. We are members of God's kingdom by inheritance and right. We don't need any other father. But that wasn't what Jesus said. He said, you must be born again of a different father. This is not a birth by right, but it is a birth by grace. It results from the Spirit's work in you to believe in Jesus and his fatherly work on your behalf. It results because he, as your everlasting father, gives you life. And then Paul reminded the Jewish people their father was not just Abraham, but also Adam, right? To remain a child of the first Adam is to say, I can trust in my good works, I can save myself, but we know how false that is. He was exiled from the garden and condemned to die. And so your works, dear friends, will never save you. But the second Adam, the last Adam, his works can save you. And he offers that to you. He offers to cleanse you from the iniquity of your sin. May God be pleased to give you faith and blessing for Jesus' sake. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your great love for us. Thank you that Jesus so perfectly revealed and represented who you are as a father. That there were so many ways in which we could legitimately call Jesus the everlasting Father. The one who goes before us, the one who protects us, intercedes for us, the one who gives us life, who sustains, nourishes, leads. Father, we are so thankful for everything that he is, everything that he does. And I pray that we would be willing to be children. That we would not proclaim the fatherhood of Abraham and of Adam as the Jewish people once did. But Father, that we would delight in being children through Jesus Christ. Lord, as we continue to propel towards our celebration of, of his birth as we look at these titles of Wonderful Counselor and Everlasting Father and Mighty God and Prince of Peace. May we be reminded again of the great grace that you had in sending us Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. So I'm